Thank you very much, Alexander. You're much, much too generous, and uh, <laughs> I'm sure there are others who could do this better. But <clears throat> I do have a passion for the, the topic, as you know, just generally, music and what it can do for us. What I thought I would do today is, with Lent just about to come up in the week, uh, choose music that would enable us to reflect through that period leading up to the wonderful Easter triumph that we celebrate and find music that uh, expresses in a healthy and edifying way the whole business of our Lord's passion leading to his crucifixion and resurrection. I chose it because, first of all, uh, hence the title Lamb of God, I'm astonished at the amount of music that has been written <coughs> under that title. It's as though it's had a special attraction. It has, of course, for visual artists too. The Lamb that was slain. Um, it's extraordinary, really, given that we've got the, um, the one reference in the Gospels, is it to John 1.29? And then only two more references before we get to Revelation. <clears throat> in Acts 8.32 and 1 Peter 1.9. That is the Lamb of God. But it seems to have drawn poets and musicians in an extraordinary way, and painters. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> and th th alongside presenting music that I hope you will find interesting, because it's not all perhaps attractive to you, I don't know. <laughs> There's quite a bit of 20th century music in here. Um, I also want to do a sidebar, if you like, as to how the issue of sentimentality has crept into Christian expression. Sentimentality has been a deep concern of mine, especially in music, um, in worship, let's just say, in hymnody, and there is um, certainly no place more that sentimentality is being applied with a heavy brush than in uh, hymns and repertoire to do with Lent. Um, this is due, there isn't time to go into why, except just to say that there's a very, very heavy pietistic influence. You see it in Bach in the um, St. Matthew and St. John Passions. Wonderful music, inspired, and the scriptures are there. Um, but then the arias come along, and they are this deep... He didn't write them. Uh, Picander would be his librettist, usually. These uh, virtual love songs um, for the Saviour. And it's, it's, the emphasis is very much about me and my relationship with Jesus, and theology and doctrine stand off to the side somewhat. Um, someone has put it stronger than that, that we don't need doctrine, it's our experience that matters. And I think that, we're talking now, of course, about the 17th century, um, this is a very strong strain in Lutheranism, um, I'm touching on things here that m m some of you are utter experts in, but these are just reference points. Uh, that, I think, settled into Western Christianity, especially in the 19th century, and uh, it's quite interesting to see how music starts to adapt um, to the times. So, if we listen to uh, a lovely medieval singing of the Agnus Dei, we get this. <laughs> <laughs> 
Somebody has suggested that, a um, number of people have suggested that chant is the ideal <laughs> vehicle for carrying words of devotion and worship. I'm not arguing for that, but it is lovely. It leaves the emotions not untouched, but ready to respond to the carrying of the words. change that to if we can jump a very large number of um, I'm not mocking this but if we just jump to I know it's going to happen this isn't going to work is it? it better <laughs> not going to work. <laughs> then we will jump to something else, which is number 10. So on the same theme, all in the April evening, April airs are abroad. <clears throat> the sheep with their little lambs, notice the little, pass me by on the road. So this is 19th century Edwardian by Hugh Roberton. All in the April evening. April airs are abroad, the sheep with their little lambs pass me by on the road. I don't know how else they would have passed them by. Anyway. <laughs> All in the April evening, I thought on the Lamb of God. The lambs were weary and crying. There's no need for that, but apparently they were. With a weak human cry, I thought on the Lamb of God going meekly to die. You can see what's happened here, can't you? <laughs> it's a complete package which you were expected to enter or leave. Rest for the little bodies, rest for the little feet. The diminutive is very Charles Dickens-ish, isn't it? Little Dorrit, little Tim. Um, but for the Lamb, the Lamb of God, up on the hilltop green, only a cross. A cross of shame.
I don't want to mock this, but it, it, it is indulgent, you have to admit. And yet this is a top 20 piece in uh, this idiom of choral music. People love it. This is a, con a recent concert in Glasgow. So wonder there isn't a bagpipe playing in the background, just to complete the... <laughs> I saw the sheep with the lambs and thought on the Lamb of God. Let me thought on. So it's not the Word of God, but these idealized rural images that slow up. Beautifully sung. So those are two extremes uh, spanning several decades um, because that approach to uh, the truth and depicting it in music and poetry was, became almost an industry in the 19th century. Um, <clears throat> some uh, of it is due to the romantic movement in music. The romantic movement in music doesn't quite match that in literature. It comes a bit later. Um, but it is a fascinating period in which uh, the inner feelings have to be put, the ideas and, uh, sorry, the impulses and feelings of the composer are the driving force, and you shall hear them, we shall hear them. Um, and also, with the Romantics, came this idea of absolute music, that there was a power within music, Beethoven's music started this off, really. Uh, Hoffman's famous essay on um, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony goes into this. That the music, without words, just has an inner power. Well, it's true. Um, but it's one which is almost transcendental. And this search for the transcendental in music is something that's um, obsessed Roger Scruton in this wonderful book called Music as an Art, which I really recommend. It's just come out. Roger Scruton, Dr. Sir Roger Scruton, has, uh, I believe, taught at uh, St. Andrews. He's a philosopher, um, a commentator, quite controversial sometimes, on aesthetics and, and the arts, and himself is a composer <laughs> and an Anglican organist. We can forgive that, but I think the <laughs> he's a fascinating man, and he... Um, <clears throat> He says this, Always our feelings are mixed, contaminated by other concerns, by needs and distractions. Never in everyday life can we give ourselves completely to love, joy, forgiveness, grief or worship. But these emotions nevertheless conjure a pure world of sympathy in which they exist in their completed form, unsullied by self-interest, objects of contemplation which bear their meaning entirely within themselves. Music can take us into that world, presenting us with transcendent, in quotes, versions of emotions that we know only in their bounded and empirical form. Got that? <laughs> Still, he's, his concern is this struggle over seeking, I think, seeking too much for music. And I personally feel 
that the, until we get to about the middle of the 18th century, there isn't that struggle. A Bach or a Mozart, but it's beginning to change, but a Bach and his contemporaries, Buxtehude and the medieval composers, had a, an art. They were recognized as artisans and skilled workers in the trade, if you like. They uh, were not deified, they were not on a pedestal living romantic style above the norms of society. And they had a craft which was then applied, if they were believers, um, to their workplace, the church usually, almost always, up until 1750. Um, therefore, the per personal feelings of a J.S. Bach or a Dietrich Buxtehude were kind of neither here nor there. It's what they did with, through the music with the text. And for me, personally, this isn't for everyone, I find that much more agreeable. <laughs> the kind of, oh, I know, this picture of the April evening and the little sheep. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you think, oh, come off it. Um, and yet this is... <laughs> Oh, sorry. <laughs> right. Bronze medal for diplomacy. Well, there we are. I mean, yes, I'm sorry. <clears throat> um, <laughs> but as I say, Bach had to handle what was emerging as a, a very pietistic text. Some of them are in um, many a hymnal under Lent. And it, their thrust tends to be along the lines of, it was not you, but I alone, who brought Christ to the cross. Not you, me. Um, there is a hymn that says that. Um, and there are often translations of German texts uh, from that pietistic tradition. And it seems to me that is verging on manipulative. And it goes right into contemporary uh, uh, music, I'm afraid. It really does. By contemporary, I mean contemporary pop. Uh, Scruton, again, claims that the essence of pop music, whether you like it and, and enjoy it or not, nevertheless is that it is a vehicle for the personality of the performer. In the same way that uh, the music I feel with All in April Evening is a vehicle for a poetic vision, if you like, or preference or, or conviction. Uh, artistic conviction. All these things are up for discussion, so I hope we will. <laughs> um, so I think what I should do now is listen, and we should listen to how Bach handles um, the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God. Um, and here I think we hear the music serving the text. A mood is created, there's no doubt about it, more perhaps than in plain chant, but it's not intrusive, um, obligatory, it leaves you to sort of think for yourself. <laughs> the texts are nearly always in Latin, I'm afraid, but we can't help that. here, you might almost call it a deep, deep, deep respect. Mm 
goes in in a minor key and that bloody chordal underlay sets a kind of mental framework for the text. Melodies as a cascade downwards. It doesn't always go down. It's featured, uh, it is a feature of this descending figure. Symbolism was very important in Baroque music, and Bach took it to a fine level. All kinds of symbols and devices to indicate the cross, sorrow, Lent. His Easter themes tend to go up. Uh, Advent and Lenten themes tend to go down. Um, that is as a general feature, as a general direction. Then we've got someone else who I, we all respect and love, who again, I think, leaves us in a way to... <clears throat> Obviously they have to have input and present how they envisage the Lamb of God. But how they do it is a question of discretion, <laughs> taste, and I think humility. And I think both Bach and this gentleman <clears throat> have caught it. It's Handel. And it's Behold the Lamb of God. And dotted rhythm which comes from the French overture, uh, Renaissance, uh, Renaissance Baroque overture, and it, it's used like the um, prelude to the Messiah as a kind of, this is serious business, possibly royal business. These dotted rhythms were used especially anything to do with monarchs <laughs> and uh, potentates. doesn't get in the way of the words. This is a 
Dunedin Consort, um, directed by John Butt, who is a Christian uh, conductor. So that rhythm present, prevents a kind of self-indulgent uh, approach to this central image uh, metaphor of the Lamb of God. It doesn't sentimentalize, at least I don't think it does, I don't see how it can. So this is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who is being referred to here. Digest it. I love to play the next one though because it just was a reminder that uh, <laughs> Handel also had a little bit of a sense of humor when it came to us. This is a, quite a contrast. Us as sheep. You can just picture these sheep scattered. So it's absolutely gender equal, uh, sheep in all directions. Sorry not to play at all, but... Wonderful performance. I heard a choir sing it that fast. Um, and we can go on into Mozart, who again um, manages to retain a dignity, uh, an almost an objectivity about this very, very precious, vital uh, image that we are presented in the Passion of Christ. This is his Agnus Day from the Requiem. Oh, sorry. Whoa, 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 whoa. 
seven. There we go. Again, a minor key, very weighty like this is. Serious, serious stuff. Give us your, grant us your peace. This is Philip Caravega and the Orchestre de Chandelise. Gorgeous music. <laughs> there's a restraint there, and all the composers <clears throat> we've heard so far, I think there's a restraint um, which comes from a, a standing back a, a little from a, a divine situation, divine, <coughs> divine topic, a divine situation. Um, this is the Son of God about to be crucified, being crucified, and all that led up to it. When you get into the... So Mozart dies at the end of the 18th century. <clears throat> Once we get into the 19th century, <clears throat> other influences start to be felt. This is Charles Gounod's um, St. Cecilia Mass. And it's very interesting to, to, to just listen to a little bit of this Agnus Day. Oh, I keep doing that. I should, uh, yeah, come on, don't do that. So very evocative. Lovely, they're not saying it's not beautiful. you about this. This is a 
Radio France, l'Orchestre Nouveau Philharmonique, Georges Petro. What we're hearing is the influence of opera. This is an operatic presentation of the uh, Lamb of God representation, topic, subject. And what we start to find is... Oh, I'll come to that in a minute, sorry. Once again, beautiful craftsmanship, skilled orchestration. There's also chromaticism, we call it in music. Move, a semitone movement within the harmonies, instead of um, fairly clear, no-nonsense relationships between chords. Now we're starting to link up through semitone moves which is the real essence of sentimental language. Um, the parlor songs of the Victorian era are full of it. The, um, uh, I'm trying to think what it's called, the, um, the music hall songs, but I'm thinking, oh, temperance songs. The temperance songs are full of it too. And of course, it's very, very strong influence in the music of Sankey and the, um, the old evangelical chorus. This could easily be a chorus. Just simplify it one bit. Wouldn't that be? Right out of the 19th century. There's the harp going 19 to the dozen. Full orchestra. with that cadence it could easily be um, a leader or a, uh, a sort of salon song from that this period. Charles Gounod, uh, Gounod sorry, um, dates are 1880 to 1893. Um, there are also more sophisticated versions of that. So here's music by someone who didn't believe. Gabriel Forêt from his beautiful music. He himself, I think, said, "I did it just, just as out of enjoyment. I don't think he had any conviction about it, but he struck an interesting note, so to speak." These guys were also, especially in the Catholic tradition, not about combining other texts with it, so other bits get slotted in. Um, the composers would sometimes have the license to come merge texts from different parts of the liturgy, especially the Requiem. Of 
course, this is later, born during Gounod's life, but dying in 1920s, uh, Gabriel Fora, in 1924. It's absolutely sumptuous music. And this seems to be an example of where, once again, it doesn't gouge the emotions, leaves you to receive it, and it's almost as though the intent of the composer doesn't matter in this case. It's out there. <laughs> the church can use it. to the Requiem Mass. Um, I find that quite fascinating. So there have been people with whom we would disagree on a number of points, not least of all um, doctrinally, as composers who have done wonderful work, almost as though they've been seized by the collar and have come up with pieces that are really wonderful. I'm not playing any of his stuff this morning, but Benjamin Britten comes to mind. Um, I sometimes think his settings are almost cynical sometimes of the, the for instance, the Festival to Dim. But it is in fact a magnificent work. I remember Harry Robinson being very deeply struck by it when we sang it. I don't know if Terry's done it, but it's, um, it takes the uh, Thou Didst Not Abhor the Virgin's Womb and he sets it to almost a calypso rhythm. And you think, hey, now come on, is this um, the cynical... Benjamin Britten um, at work. Well, if it is, nevertheless, the piece somehow works in the context. That's another discussion, but it's a fascinating one, and the, the foray reminds me of it in that what are we... Did, can you accidentally present the transcendental? I don't know. Can you accidentally run into it? Even if um, you're simply being, so to speak, used by God as a composer. I don't know. Um, but the, the 20th century has not, for all its boasting about being contemporary and throwing overboard the 19th century values in music, they have in fact, they're, they're alive and well. This is um, Kim Arnie Arneson's setting of The Lamb, which I'd like us to listen to almost completely and contrast it with something else. Um, he's was born, I think, 1970s. Um, a, 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 a Swedish composer, <clears throat> gaining a lot of popularity, beautiful writing. Um, but in a way, I suppose you could argue this is as romantic as All in the April Evening, but it's the text, at least, is <laughs> the um, Blake poem, The Lamb, which I'm sure you're aware of. little lamb who made thee.
got the text here, I didn't bring it up. Thou know who made thee. Little lamb, I'll tell thee. got the same interest in little, the diminutive, still the poetry is much more profound than that. He is called by thy name. For he calls himself a lamb. harmonies going on here with clusters of notes but it's based on a more romantic language than you might expect from a current Scandinavian composer So I'll be interested to know what you feel about this. Little lamb, God bless thee. Very complex piece to sing. 
tuning has to be perfect and the intonation has to be question that gives rise to is did I think Arneson is sincere um, I don't can't speak for his uh, convictions but I do sometimes wonder if there's a text which will allow me to really show <laughs> my harmonic expertise and craftsmanship and really um, explore harmonic richness. In other words, the text gets used. I can't say. It's just something that crosses my mind. Somebody who decided not to go a popular route with the same text, um, very different, was Sir John Taverner. John Taverner, uh, recently knighted, well, knighted before his death recently, uh, was a leading British composer, orthodox, uh, Christian, and uh, very much influenced by the orthodox music, its chant and its parallel harmonies and so on. This is his treatment of that text. I won't play it all, but uh, here we go. It's much more functional, I would say. It leaves you alone a bit. Jeremy Begbie loves to play this piece and get his students to sing it. Tavener died in 2013. That's hard to sing. Those intervals are very elusive. It just clearly he's not saying here's something I can try out my harmonic expertise on. He's quite restrained. different approach. Um, you don't have to have the Kleenex ready with that one. Uh, but with the Kimani Arneson one, you might need it. Um, it's very moving. But is it moving for the right reason? And are we dealing with the transcendental in our search for the transcendental, which Scruton claims is, is 
very elusive. I can't really find it, get it, but you can get close. Or uh, should we not judge? Just leave it as it is. Um, <clears throat> Frank Martin was a Swiss composer, Calvinist, convict, um, of conviction, and uh, wrote some wonderful music. This is his Agnus Day, magnificent Agnus Day, which he wrote in 1926. And it shows, I think, um, a combination, wonderful combination of skill, contrapuntal skill, um, that is many voices are going at once. In fact, it's for double choir. It's for soprano, alto, tenor, bass, soprano, alto, tenor, bass. Um, and it, again, it's the Agnus Day from his Mass. It's sung by the Netherlands Chamber Choir. <laughs> wonderful restraint and dignity in regarding the text. This combination of consummate skill <laughs> and just serving the text is, uh, I think, the key to Christian music of any kind.
Martin died in I find it incredible, personally. <laughs> it's a masterpiece. It's a shame that um, we can't hear these kind of pieces. This is sheer practicality. Um, you can't, unless you've got a professional setup, you can't get a choir like that together. Um, perhaps at a university, if you're lucky, Trinity Western did that. Um, but it, it was a struggle. You really need to have. Um, a, these, these choirs that come out of um, Scandinavia and the Netherlands um, and Germany, partly through the education system in the schools, which encourages music, you can draw on these large... Well, in London, too. You can draw on this large body of singers to put together these things and record them. Um, but for the average... No, most cathedrals, even, wouldn't be able to tackle that without setting aside a lot of time. So... They become treasures that you bring out occasionally and enjoy, you know, either to perform or hear. I must move on. Um, two things. I just wanted to touch on the theme of the Lord is not only the Lamb of God, but he is also now risen, our shepherd. And Will Todd, uh, a concurrent young London composer, set that idea thus. Tenebrae, Tenebrae Choir, English Chamber Orchestra. in jazz idioms so he's just skirting the romantic harmonic language of the 19th century here uh, and yet I think avoiding some of the pitfalls some of the uh, modulations into new keys that take you by surprise and keep you on your mental toes there's a lot of hope in this setting of the 23rd Psalm Lord, 
a more agitated underlay of rhythm here, which always implies anticipation and hope. Clever use of the modulations there into different keys. A little bit of sentimental. to John Rutter, who did a lot of, uh, what's going on, um, breaking new ground in the 1960s, 70s. He made a name for himself and then just flowered as a composer in this idiom. But others have often studying with him have taken off from there. Rutter was at uh, Cambridge and made his name through his Christmas carol recordings on Argo. But the person who, at the end of the day, I think, has really caught the joy of Easter, where we're looking ahead to, this is the end of the crucifixes, crucifixes from the B minor mass, and this is the et resurrexit, which I will conclude. Rising figures. 
major key. Nice and loud, jolly music. This is a Christian treat. allows you time to think. An interjection is going to be a conclusion. Rising figure. I wanted to end on a positive note. <laughs> after supplying this music, which I hope has been at least a bit of an introspection, <laughs> A, into the season we're entering, uh, B, into how we've got to where we have in our expression of our faith um, through the arts and its relevance to the church today. So I'll leave it there. Questions? <laughs> yes? I'm just so glad that I, I've never heard a talk about sloppy Christian music. Like, yeah, come to our house. Right? <laughs> yeah. you know, I, it's just, I always used to feel guilty about not liking those really sloppy hymns. But now that I think about it, I don't even like sloppy pop music. Dan Hill's Sometimes When We Touch, which is an anthem. I just used to make me barf. It was, and, and, and this is just such a, um, a condemnation of that schmaltzy stuff that infects certain 
uh, aspects of, of Christian music, which I, you know, has always repulsed me. And it's so great because you're saying, well, yeah, it's maybe not the best theologically, which I had never really sort of mm. uh, examined in that in that manner. But the cute little lammies crossing the street. You know, this, this is well, so thank wonderful. you. Yeah, this is really great. I didn't mean it to be in any way a condemnation of anything, although I wa- I did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right, but I. <laughs> I did have something I was going to play, but I refrained. I'm glad to see, by God's grace, I failed to land, load it onto the disc. It, it is an utterly and complete, completely manipulative um, version of Lamb of God. And Now, uh, yeah, let's leave it at that. I mean, I just can't believe it. It's interesting to hear, but it's just a crowd worker upper. That's all it is. It's a studio production, I think, and it's by the. You can see uh, on the uh, the um, waveform if you put it on the computer, it starts on a piano, gets just moving, and then then it gets bigger and bigger. By the end of the file, it's right up here. And then they're screaming and yelling, and the choir's going gangbusters, and there's this uh, pop uh, soprano voice over the top, just. Ah, and you think, now what was all that about? Is Roger Scruton right? Was that a vehicle for the personality, because it was under the name of a particular personality in that field? Is it just a vehicle for that person's display and personality? I think we're allowed to adjudicate these things. I've got to adjudicate next week. Um, That is... As a Christian, you listen to something and you assess it and adjudicate it. It's done theologically. It's done at Regent College, I'm sure. And it's done when they, uh, supposed to, when they interview clergy and so on for ordination. Um, it, you have to assess, and I, I think we're shy, we shy off that when it comes to music. Um, it doesn't mean that you're judging the person when you adjudicated a music festival at all. You're saying, I'm sorry, but that performance is all about you. You can say that. And famous adjudicators like Herbert Howells have done so. He said famously once, if you had put as much effort into the music as you did into your appearance on stage, this would be a stunning. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, and I don't understand why, well, I do understand quite why the church has fallen in the evangelical wing especially for the um, for the idiom that it has I don't mind that except with it goes a rejection of the other that we've been hearing um, so often it's seen as because it's not immediately join-inable you can't join in the Frank Martin mass um, you've got to learn your part it requires work and or a lot of obstacles. A reluctance perhaps I think sometimes to receive, to just for the congregation to sit quietly and receive something prepared is something we've lost. One of the things that I do during Lent is the Allegra Misere. I just love oh, yes. playing that yes. as a sort of a setup to my devotions for the day. Yes, I didn't play that. Right. I, I just find that such a beautiful it is, yeah. and and I now know theologically pretty pretty solid progression yeah. musically. Yeah. Yeah. 
Scruton goes in a lot into the issue, and if I can quickly, I don't want to bore you with as I look through pages, but he says something about uh, we live at a critical time for music. Um, common practice to we no longer we no longer just every day. Okay, uh, the repertoire was neither controversial nor especially challenging. Music took its place in the ceremonies and celebrations of ordinary life alongside the rituals of everyday religion and the forms of good manners. We no longer live in that world. Uh, music at home largely emerges from digital machines controlled by buttons that require no musical culture to be pressed. For many people, the young especially, music is a form of largely solitary enjoyment to be absorbed without judgment and stored without effort in the brain. And I think that is something the church should counter as we try to, in other fields, uh, reading, thinking, um, theology, doctrine, and so on. Yes, John? I've got a good question. A friend of mine from the Holy Grocery Cathedral, she oh, yeah. says church music is like offer singing. I said, now, just a second, like sometimes too much of it can be boring, but the Tao, I think she should have an appreciation for it some of the time. You're mentioning sometimes it's a treasure that you bring out every so often, that mm. kind of music. I, I might mention those words to her, but there's something kind of missing in her life because I think she should like music like that a little bit. Especially there, under Denis Bedard. Yeah. And she says, oh, why, she said to the music director, why don't you sing the music like they do in the black church? And they say, in the Holy Ghost oh, Cathedral, the McDonald Rain notes. No. In the nighttime <laughs> service, it's a little bit more, but she's, if yes. she, she gets some appreciation of some of the arts I think a little bit or like English high tea she doesn't like it it might just bring a bit of balance but she just doesn't seem to appreciate like things like that not too much once in a while type thing but not, not at all no I think she should like it a little bit but how to get a person like that interested in it yes and if the church starts playing um radio station culture that is we'll play what people want to hear because yeah. then we get our ratings and then we get our money uh, I think we're on a slippery slope of some kind perhaps not totally fatal but it's disappointing yeah and I think this happened alas yeah interesting Holy Rosary particularly because Denis Bedard who was the music director, music director there is a, a superb musician I think this music can be therapeutic because a guy in the men's Bible yeah. says he's got a son who suffers from anxieties. Well, sometimes this can be good because human emotions can do all sorts of things. And this is where this kind of music is sometimes it's just what a person needs to hear yeah, sometimes. Yeah, right. Just, I can see Alexandra with her scimitar drawn. Is there any quick, very quick question? Yes. I just wondered if you have any opinion just curious if you have any opinion on sacred music sung in Latin versus oh, yes. sacred music sung in Yes. English. Well, I always... <laughs> the only thing I would... I love it when it's in English, but I, I think we've got that historical heritage, pre-Reformation heritage, and even in Lutheranism, um, and I suppose in the English cathedral tradition, Latin was uh, tolerated or allowed in the cathedrals. Um, and it seems to me, thinking back to my auntie Florence in Bristol, who is a devout Catholic, they know what the Latin means through repetition. And she knew a lot for a lot of other good reasons. But in the annual day, they're not going to go. Mm. Um, so I think there's a certain beauty in 
uh, a coded language which is un- not totally unique but used by the church and secondly it happens to be one of the most beautiful languages to set to music English is a bit awkward as Handel discovered when he worked on the Messiah he, um, and Latin just flows beautifully uh, for some reason or other but that's all I can say about it I, I don't want we often battle with it here and if we did when I was music director, I'm sure Terry does it too. If we were singing in Latin, we put an English, or try to remember, to put an English translation in so that people did know what was being sung. Well, I know we could go on and on. It would be lovely if we had a three-part series or a 12-part series. I, I know I'd be here every week. That would be biblical, 12-part series. 12-part series. Just want to take an opportunity to say thank you once again. A, a, an amazing and, and really inspiring talk. Thank, thank you. you very much.